Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 105, The Dark Side of Embedded Linux, recorded July 28th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. This week, we're going to cover actually a very old news story, but not from a news angle. We've talked about embedded Linux before. I think we called it the hidden Linux. Uh, and tonight we're going to talk about the downside of the hidden Linux. And you'll, you'll know a little, more, a little bit more about that as we go. And of course, the we that I'm talking about is myself. My name's Mark. Hi. Good to meet you. And alongside uh, me every week, usually, uh, is the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. Hi, Christopher. Good evening, internets. And how are we today? And of course... What show would be complete without the gooey goodness that is Seth Anderson, the gooey kid? Hey, Seth. Hey, Mark. And unfortunately, there's probably a lot of shows that would be complete without the gooey goodness. But <laughs> this is not one of them, dadgummit. That's right. This show requires the gooey goodness, the, the nougat to our Three Musketeers bar. <laughs> Seth Anderson. Oh, wow. The nougat. <laughs> I like it. The nougat. That's, that's the new thing. Um, so this week has been a crazy week for me. I'm just going to get right in there. Um, my more SQL database crashes. I talked about it last week. It happened again this week. Um, and I was able now, since I knew what it was this time, I was able to fix it. Yay. But I still don't know what's causing it. Um, and then in, in what I hope is an entirely related issue, unrelated issue, my ISP went down completely on uh, Saturday, Friday and Saturday. Oh, joy. No video? Who says no video? Masco says I'm no video. I'm sending video. Why are you not are you, seeing video? What? Uh, it might relate where to you the at, ISP though? story you were talking about a moment yeah, ago. There's, I'm, I just checked the video. There's video. Masco, so, you and YouTube are on the, uh, was it Justin? I'm seeing it on both. So I don't know. Anyway, moving right along. Starting on Thursday night, my internet took a dump. <laughs> Just went away. Um, my, I have AT and T DSL, and it was gone. And I, 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 you know, did all my various troubleshooting things, trying to figure out what it was. I even thought it was my old trusty Boris box. I, I really thought that the 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 title of the show was going to be saying goodbye to Boris. Because I thought that maybe he would just he just died and there just was nothing more. But um, I, I, di- I didn't have a lot of time to troubleshoot it until just today. More on that in a minute. Uh, and then I or like actually late last night. So, but I found out, figured out that the issue is not me. Um, it's not even at my router. My router, I was pinging through that. Everything was fine. My DSL modem was good. It was just dying like at the second hop. Go figure. Uh, but. We came back up just in time for the show. It's like they knew. They had workmen out there going, Everyday Linux has to go on the air at 8 p.m. Sunday night. We've got to get it fixed. And they did. Just hours before showtime. They fear the element opiates. (laughs) The power of EDL will compel you. That's that's the authority we have. We rule with an iron fist. But I got to say, for an internet geek, being without internet for a couple of days... Uh, it's it's just a good thing my phone was still working because I would have been <laughs> I would have been insane without that. But um, I could even even tether if I needed to. So um, we we got along just fine. But that's the geek version of roughing it. 
I'm having to tether through my phone because my DSL is down. <laughs> Mark, do you ever take a weekend of just turning off the internet altogether? Uh, I The only way I can do that is to get out of the house. I, I Wait, do that sometimes. Uh, what I, is that you're talking about, Chris? <laughs> apparently, just an unplugged weekend. Apparently, Seth, there are people understand. who live without the internet. <laughs> I, I, you're I like talking a different language. I, I cannot <laughs> understand what you're saying. Uh, think of it Those like words a, don't understand. Think of it like an internet outage, but on purpose. Go figure. Oh wow, that's amazing that people would subject themselves to that. Yeah, it's it's Every like you know some people like to have a pizza outage. I don't understand that either. But yeah, <laughs> so I had some friends come in from Texas um, for a whirlwind weekend. Let me tell you, whirlwind, whirlwind. There we go. Uh, weekend they came in about eleven thirty thursday night and left at nine thirty sunday morning um and in that time we uh they went to a braves game we went to the georgia aquarium which is the largest aquarium in north america it's 10 million gallons under roof takes a while to get through they did the uh world of coke the uh coke museum here in atlanta they did a t- a tour of turner field um which is the stadium that the braves play in then they did a couple of uh, the big um, restaurants that are popular around here. All that in about 43 hours or so. Um, wow. wow. It was, they were busy. Yeah, it was kind of nuts. Uh, so that's <laughs> why I didn't really have time to troubleshoot my ISP issues because uh, we were doing that. Um, we Yesterday, I mean, I had, a, I had a long day at work on Friday. Just I knew it was going to be. It was the way things had stacked up. I had to be literally at two different places in the same day, and those two places were forty miles apart. Um, so I was I was I was running all day, uh, not literally running, but uh, I was going all day. And so I got up at you know left the house at six in the morning, uh, got back about six in the evening, and then the Braves game was that evening. Uh, so I was a zombie walking through the day by by yesterday afternoon. But my friends had a good time. We we played host to them, and it was nice to hear. A, a Texas accent again. Um, <laughs> so if I well, fall good. asleep here in a few minutes, you'll know why. If I'm just leaning up against my microphone snoring, just don't wake me up. <laughs> Go on with the show. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I know that's like... Seth, you decided to put SSDs into practice on your own hardware. Yeah, I was. Um, I was just thinking about getting a new laptop and uh, I went on eBay because, you know, I'm, I'm too cheap to buy something brand new. And uh, I was just like, I wonder what the prices are. And then I saw one had an i5, 8 gigs of RAM and uh, like 128 gig hard drive. And I was like, wow, that's a great buy. So I'm going to buy it. I bought it. It showed up yesterday. I've been playing with it. Well, it actually showed up Friday, but I was gone all day. So uh, and dude, it is it is so much faster. So. I understand what y'all have been talking about for the past <laughs> however long y'all have been talking about SSDs and just when I, and it, it's really noticeable whenever you install updates to like Windows, you know, and how it configures updates before it shuts down. Yeah, it takes no time and uh, turning on the same thing. So I'm amazed at how much faster it is. Uh, it's really, really cool. So yes, I am the newest uh, member at least of my circle in SSD land. So what did you put that in? What hardware did you put it in? Um, like I say, I bought a new laptop. It's an Aspire. I don't remember the model number, but it had an i5 dual core processor, two point something gigs, eight gigs of RAM, 
running Windows 7, 64-bit. and uh, So it's a solid piece of hardware. So how much time oh, yeah. did, did you live with it any time before the SSD, or did it come with the SSD? It came with the SSD. Okay. So you don't and, really uh, know I'm, the difference that the SSD made. I mean, because you went from like a one gigahertz processor up, so it was a big well, deal anyway, right? Not really. I went from a Toron 2 at 2.3 to the i5 at 2.3, so... Okay same ballpark um it has more ram but um you know it doubles the ram from four to eight so it's not like you know i didn't come from junk to that it's, well, it's a move up but not a great move up you and i were talking offline about putting an ssd in your one gig processor so that's what i was right. basing that off of i didn't realize you had another laptop uh but it would in be interesting to see um the difference an ssd can make in sluggish hardware you know, if you're if you're if you're straining the hardware already, what what difference would just an SSD make? I, I would yeah, bet it I would be still pretty question. pronounced. Yeah, I was looking to. I was going to buy like a little Chromebook, is what I was looking at, and I was just seeing some of the different specs that were out there. Whenever we were, and uh, you know, I just I thought, well, you know, I don't want to pull that uh, trigger. So I saw this, and it seemed like a good price. So uh, I bought it, and uh, it came and. I'm playing with it, and so now I'm just going to be moving my stuff off of my computer onto that one, and I'm going to redo this one and see if I can sell it for a little bit online. And we have a little listener feedback we'll get to in a minute uh, regarding SSDs as well. But in the meantime, Chris, you had family visiting as well, right? Yep, I had friends and family, both. Uh, brother, my Two of my brothers came back to town for... Uh, one came back just because, and the other one came back because he wanted to uh, go see his 10-year reunion. So we had my brothers and their dogs and um, his girlfriend and her dog. And, yeah, it was a mess in my house. And on top of that, a friend of mine, or a friend of my mom's that is like my big brother, he uh, came up from Houston to live with us, or to come up here to visit for a little bit. So we had him and his dog in, in the house as well. So yeah, it was crazy. So you too had the great state of Texas represented in your household. I did, I did. Yeah, he uh, he's a diehard Houston fan. So <laughs> go Texas. I, I was actually, yeah, I, I had a ha I had a fun time listening, giving a bunch of grief. But uh, yeah, it was nice to have everybody in for the proverbial holidays, even though there was no holiday. <laughs> and another Texas connection, just because uh, he is beloved to many people, a quick rest in peace to Kid Craddock, radio DJ extraordinaire, who got his start in the Dallas market. I literally grew up with the guy on KEGL 97.1, the Eagle. The Eagle. Uh, and uh, Kid Craddock died uh, just yesterday. He was doing uh, hosting a celebrity golf tournament, uh, wasn't feeling well, and then wasn't feeling anything. So uh, rest in peace, Kid Craddock. That's all I had to Definitely. say um, And what is a Razer QT, Chris? <laughs> uh, this is a desktop environment. It's uh, similar to KDE as in it runs on the QT environment. It's extremely stripped down. And since uh, LX, or wait, L LXDE, or LXDE, they uh, are moving away from the GTK toolkits and moving to QT. So I think what's going to happen is Razer and um, LXD, yeah, whatever. They're all joining forces now to to have a QT environment that's extremely lightweight. So I figured I'd give uh, Razer QT a run and see how how well it runs now, and then after they combine forces to see how well it runs after. 
and I'm f- extremely impressed already with speed and the fact that it's a QT environment. I'm already familiar with it from my days with KDE. So, um, yeah, it's a so far it's a nice run. I've only had it for a week, so but it's so far not too bad. And has that prompted you to change hardware as well? What's the second story here? No, no. The second story is um, I was <laughs> I've been typing on a split keyboard for probably five years, uh, just because I wanted to 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 use a split keyboard. So work bought me one, and they said, "Well, you got to use it until it blows up, or you can't see the letters anymore." <laughs> so um, this week. I, I looked at my keyboard and went, huh, I can't see any of the letters on home row anymore. I think it's time for a new keyboard. You know, I never liked so, the split keyboards. I tried them. I never lived with one. I've only tried it a little bit. But I will say the one thing they do seem to be really good at is forcing you to type properly. None of that crossing yep. over and hitting the R with your right finger when the R is nine inches away. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but what I see, what I've normally used to using is... Not the split keyboard, but the curved keyboard that Microsoft put out. Um, it's got a slight curve in it, so it's not quite a split, but it's not cl- quite as straight. So uh, right, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm going to end up going back to my curve at work or if I'm going to end up with a, a flat straight keyboard. But uh, I will say the one that I have currently on my desk as a temporary, it's super duper quiet. So. I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but the, the the keyboard that I'm running right now is just a, a Dell standard flat keyboard. But man, is it quiet compared to my old split keyboard? <laughs> yeah, a quiet keyboard makes a big difference if you are surrounded by a lot of people. The, where I work, they use Dells, and Dell uh, this I think they went to Dell and said, "Give us the loudest keyboard you make," because <laughs> everywhere you you sit there and hear click, it's like a a a typewriter factory in there or something it's unbelievable how loud it is just you know seven or eight people in a in a small space because of the cube system and they're all if i feel like i work in a manufacturing environment sometimes um so yes quiet keyboards for the win are they all you know sometimes i get mad and i actually i try to make noise in the keyboard you know and then i have to get a new keyboard later but so sometimes they make noise on purpose, regardless of how quiet they try to be. Yeah. And thank you, Microsoft, for what I don't know. Uh, well, I went to a Spiceworks user group meeting, and people, and they didn't advertise this beforehand, but everybody who showed up is getting a free full version of Windows 8 and a free full version of Office 2013. So awesome. I thought you can downgrade cool. that license to Windows 8 to something useful. Amazing. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah, but you know, I, I'll I'll have it so legally right. to sit in my office and or sit in my home and collect dust and uh, Office 2013. So I just thought, you know, that was pretty cool. Although they didn't have to do that, but they gave it away. And you know, I wanted to give them some love, so somebody from Microsoft will hear me pleading for a free <laughs> Surface RT and contact the show to send me one. So I'm trying to give them some good press to butter them up. I went to a thing uh, years ago and got. Um, uh, a free copy of Office 2010 at the time was the, no, 2007. That's how long ago it was. And Vista, Windows Vista Home Premium Edition. Um, both of which are still shrink wrapped. <laughs> I brought them home. I put them on a shelf. 
I moved them across country when I moved. I've never opened either of them because I have no. What do I need Vista for? I mean, even at the time when Vista was the operating system of choice, uh, I wasn't using that. I was running Linux everywhere at that time, um, and so I, I like you. I hang on. I hung on to it just so I'd have a license, right? Just so I could justify something else later if I needed right. to put a, a, an upgrade or something. At least I've got this license. I can do it, there and I. Know. And the last time I had Office installed on a personal computer was the 90s. I mean, I've been using LibreOffice and OpenOffice for that long. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, if it, when I went to work, you know, they use Microsoft everywhere. And because I was familiar with, with you know, basic operating uh, or, or Office document operating uh, methods, I could function. So I wasn't lost in any way. Note to all you people out there who say we have to teach kids on Microsoft or they won't be able to get a job. I haven't used it in years, but I jumped right in and went, oh, a spreadsheet's a spreadsheet. Let's go. Uh, yep. So, you know, I use, I go back and forth between them at work. I share documents back and forth with myself as need be, but I can't, rem- I literally cannot remember the last time I installed Microsoft Office of any flavor on a machine I own. I can yeah, second um, that. I got one because of the the school I worked at had the uh you know the the professional agreement where I got to take it home then right so uh but yeah wait 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 I'm I'm gonna have to crawfish I forgot the business uh, the the Christmas card app that that I I uh, it was based on Microsoft uh, Access database and I hand coded it back in like ninety six. I still have that. So I have that version of Office that I've migrated from every machine so that we can hit the merge button on on my Christmas cards just because I didn't want to convert it ever again. So I stand corrected. One machine where we print out the Christmas card list, that still has a version of Office on it that hasn't been updated in over a decade. See, Mark, you're a liar. Nobody can believe anything you have ever said now for all eternity. I have proven myself untrustworthy. Darn it. Now what are we going to do? It's so funny because there's this one file that says Christmas.mdb uh, on it, and that's like the only time we ever use it. Once a year, uh, we go in and we update the fields for the people who've moved and added new things, and we hit print, and it does a mail merge and spits out the envelopes, and then we shut it down again for 364 more days. <laughs> oh, wow. And you haven't vm that yet, Mark? Come on. Uh, that's not a bad idea, actually. Make an image of that sucker in a VM and just pull it out when I need it. It's not a bad idea. There you go. <laughs> Saves you some hardware. Actually, what I should do is just take the, the pain of converting that to something else. Because for a long time, the database in OpenOffice sucked rocks. Um, it's gotten a lot better. Uh, and that's why I built it that way. Because during the time of, of OpenOffice, I don't know, six probably, it was a while back, the mail merge function was just miserable and didn't work worth anything. So maybe I'll do that and report back to you. To you, Probably be December, okay. frankly, but uh, maybe <laughs> I will. Right. All right, moving on to the listener feedback portion of the show. Uh, Rainey wrote in and noticed something that ain't quite right. He says, hey, guys, I, in the last podcast, you mentioned that people who check the RSS feed will uh, be always up to date with the episodes, even though the website went down. Perhaps... It is me, but my G-Potter hasn't downloaded anything since episode 102. And I double-checked you on your website by clicking the RSS feed link, which lists number 100 as the last episode. 
So is this issue just mine, or which is absolutely possible, or is there something wrong with the RSS feed? Thanks, gentlemen. Keep up the good work. Uh, well, Rainey, it's not just you, because I went back right after I got your email earlier today and clicked the RSS feed, and it, sure enough, was showing episode 100. However, on Thursday or Wednesday, when I released the show, it was showing episode 104. So I don't know what happened. My assumption is my uh, hosting provider is still having some growing pains, and they probably restored an old version of, of a file without telling me, including the RSS feed. So I just went into the system and manually regenerated its feed again, and it was right. So I don't know what's up with that. But I will say that uh, as of the release date, it was fine, because I, I have all the things on my phone. And the first thing I do when I wake it's sad. Yes, I know. First thing I do when I wake up in the morning is check to see if my feeds have, have downloaded properly. And if they haven't, I go I go check on it. So Wednesday morning when the when episode one oh four came out, it was there in my phone, the RSS feed was was good. So sometime between Wednesday and when you checked on it, it got reverted to an older version. It's right now, but uh, I don't know what to tell you. I also had another listener tell me that he uses the the uh, the master feed that you can click on on the right, left-hand side of the page. I use Yahoo Pipes for that. It aggregates all the feeds on the site, and apparently it does not always update in a timely manner because he said it wasn't working right, that uh, it was back to at, at show 102, and I went, huh, and I went and looked at it, and he was right. It was at one, show 102, and then I manually refreshed it, and it caught up again but i've never had to do that before so weird stuff's going on out there i think people i think people are abandoning rss left and right uh and it's causing some issues i don't know what's going on but as of this moment 8 23 p.m eastern time sunday july 28th 2013 all feeds are up to date and i will keep an eye on that it's those darn hackers it's got to be them yeah, it's we, it's the we are big enough to attract the attention of them, so that that's a bonus for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> no. I take all of that back. I uh, I had to do some some maintenance uh, on the website uh, earlier in the week, and uh, Drupal has what's called a maintenance mo- mode. You can put it in that mode, and and it'll put up a little uh, message that that the site's being worked on. And I thought, you know, I could just put up the sites down. I'm working on it. But this is Element OP Productions. We deserve something a little better than that. So I wrote a little blurb, and I'm trying to find it real quickly while I talk, and I can't. But it was, it's, this is going to be a paraphrase. It was something to the effect of, uh, pardon the inco- inconvenience, but uh, one of our unlicensed uh, amateur nuclear devices um, is currently experiencing, experiencing a slight meltdown. Not to worry, though, our highly trained garden gnomes are currently pounding on it as hard as they can with lead wrenches. Um, <laughs> assuming they get it working and we don't open up a singularity uh, large enough to envelop certain uh, several nearby solar systems, we'll get the site right back up and running. In the meantime, we suggest you enjoy a frosty beverage of your choice and a large slab of bacon. Awesome. So mm, if you ever see bacon. that message on the site, you'll know that I'm tweaking something. That's uh, cool. Tweaking and tinkering. (laughs) Moving on with more comments. Kane comments on episode 104. He says, great as always, even though not a whole lot of Linux. LOL. But enjoying listening to your co-hosts and as it puts a smile on my face. 
On another note, I decided to install a dedicated firewall again and went with Untangle. All I can say is this thing rocks. I've messed about with IPsec, Smoothwall, IPCOP in the past, but I really like the functionality and reporting of Untangle. I've already got some friends that requested my assistance in setting them up. Monitor the teens and such. Uh, a system in their homes. Possible money to be made. Cheers, Kane. Uh, and that's uh, something I wanted to, to point out there. The reason I have it in here is when we've talked about Untangle before, I've never mentioned its reporting. Not that I can recall. And the reporting is the reason I used Untangle where I worked. The the reports are amazing. They they. They detail everything that happens in an actual human-readable way. It's not just a log dump. It's it's actual usable logs with headings and indexes uh, presented to you in a PDF format that the system will just email to you on a regular basis. So if you're into that sort of thing, Untangle is is an amazing thing. We've we've raved about it many times before. Untangle is great, and you can do a whole lot of stuff with it for free, and you can do a whole lot more. By the way, the reporting module is free. And then if you want to pay a few bucks, you could do a whole lot more with it. So more props to and Untangle. If you have it on your system, then you could do like a site-to-site VPN where you could remote in and manage their system as well, you know, or just access it from the web. So, you know, if you wanted to be their firewall administrator and update your resume cred uh, and make yourself a side business, you can do that. And, um, you know, just uh, be sure you go to... Uh, anyway, we'll cover that later. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna bring up that if you are gonna possibly do this as a business, be sure to contact Untangled. They do have a reseller plan that will kick back to you. Um, if there's more support rep, if there's more need in your area, if you're a support or Untangled rep, they can actually ping you to go to a site and work on stuff. So it would be another way to make a few few coins. There you go. We uh we're all about making money for you more more for us but for you as well right <laughs> uh, Kevin writes in and says we gave him some good advice who knew uh, awesome. he says about hi Mark we gave somebody some <laughs> he says hi Mark Seth and Chris I'm writing you this email to let you know I have done with your advice to me last I wrote to you in April uh, you read my email on EDL number ninety three. Quick recap on my email is I ask about getting um, install media for Windows 7, dual booting, and if I needed to split my hard drive or get a bigger one. Bigger one. Here are the results. I went to the site that Seth suggested, downloaded the ISO, burned it to a DV, and put it in the DVD and put it on a USB drive. I purchased a 500 gig. I'm guessing those two things were redundant that I didn't put the DVD on a USB drive. That would be weird. Uh, I purchased a 500 gig hard drive, backed up all things needed from it, and then pulled it. I installed the new drive, hooked up the old drive with a borrowed adapter, and you cloned it with Conezilla, as Chris suggested. Everything went as planned, except for one small problem. After I rebooted everything that was that was there and ran great, but after checking the drive properties, I was left with an 80 gig hard drive. I'd missed one of the settings in Conezilla. But after a little Googling, all I had to do was fire up Gparted and expanded the Windows partition and created a new, two new Linux partitions. So a quick pause there. Uh, Clonezilla, in its default state, just clones your partitions exactly as they are. You put an 80-gig drive on a 500-gig hard drive, you get an 80-gig partition. But as he said, there's a checkbox that says, fill it up, and it'll do that. Um, but he fired up Gparted, problem solved. Moving on, he said, I installed CrunchBang Linux. 
Why, I don't know. On one of the partitions and was going to install Fedora 19 on their last partition, but failed. Chris, the new installer still sucks. I downloaded the full install DVD at the partition phase of the of the install. It said I had 178 gigs free, so cool. I proceeded the install, but was told that there was not enough room to install it. I tried several times uh, in ways, but to no avail. I'm not sure if it's me or not. I successfully installed several Linux distributions over the years. Slackware, Arch, Debian, Ubuntu, Mint, and the list could go on. But I, I know I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, but I'm no idiot either. By the way, you misspelled idiot. That's ironic. My point <laughs> is no installer should be so confusing. Rant over. I installed Debian instead of Fedora and I'm very happy now. I now have a bigger hard drive with Windows and Linux dual booting. I have the old hard drive as a backup and install media for Windows 7. Thanks for the great advice and help. I really love the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you, gentlemen, very much, Kevin. Great well, you're welcome, Kevin. Great email. Um, yeah, glad we were able to help, Kevin. So we pretty much, we didn't spend a whole show on it, but we spent a lot of a show on that. We talked about uh, partitioning and why you'd want to do it. And uh, so, yeah, that was helpful. Great. He did everything we told him to do, and it wasn't a bad idea. Because <laughs> you never know when you're sitting here extemporizing behind a microphone if you're actually giving good advice. So thanks, Kevin, for the uh, word of encouragement. And then Mike, Mike writes in with a chance to flog our Amazon link says, I'm having to buy school books since returning for a network security degree, and I've used Amazon in the past two semesters because it's cheaper than the college bookstore. I was dumb and didn't use your link before uh, where you get credit, but I've remembered for the fall semester. Is all I really do click the link that says Amazon and then buy what I need? Is it that simple? Also, I'm trying to sell books on Amazon and as well and I don't uh, that I don't need anymore. Do you guys get a cut of that as well? I'm a poor college student. Take care. Love the show. Um, Yes, it is that easy. Click the link, go on about your business. We get a small referral fee. No, we don't get a cut of your sales. I'm okay with that. Sorry. Uh, and he says, P.S. Yeah, if no you want to tip us after you sell them, I mean, we'll be more than happy to take that. But by oh, default, we don't get any. <laughs> he wants something yeah. that costs him nothing, though. Um, oh, okay. As using the link does, it costs you nothing. You don't see anything. That's Mike. He didn't get it. It was too simple. You, nothing costs anymore. There's no more things to do. You just get a little cookie that says, hey, we sent him there. That's all there is to it. And he says, P.S., no need to really put this on the air. An email will do just fine. But if you want to use it to educate others, then by all means, go ahead. And yes, we do want to educate others about elementopcom slash Amazon for all your amazing Amazon needs that also supports the show that you like. At least a little bit. At least enough to listen to it. There you go. I wish I, I should pr- try to pursue a sponsorship from Amazon because we rave about Amazon pretty much every show as it is. We might as well get paid well, to do it. Definitely. <laughs> I like that idea. Amazon, we're coming. Look out. <laughs> I, I truly, truly um, enjoy my Amazon shopping experience. And what, the thing that I haven't figured out yet is how to get the referral link into the mobile app. Because when I purchase on my own mobile app, or if you use a mobile app, there's no way to give us credit for it. There's no way to put a referred by in the mobile app. And as more and more people do more and more purchasing on the mobile, on the on the Kindle Fire and whatever else, um, we're going to start to lose a chunk of that revenue. Um, and that uh, hundred dollars every four or five months comes in handy. <laughs> I'm not getting rich off of this stuff, but hey, um, 
Every little bit helps. So thank you, Mike, for hosting. thinking of us. It does indeed. Yeah, so far, um, I've had all of my hosting needs and all my bandwidth needs paid for uh, by the sh- by supporters and uh, Amazon referrals and things like that. I haven't had to pay anything out of cost for the last two or three years uh, out of pocket. So that's that's awesome. Uh, it doesn't cost much. You know, a couple hundred bucks a year is all I need to keep this show going. And you guys have been providing that. So thanks for that. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Thank you again from all of us at EDL to everyone listening. So if you happen to really uh, be an Amazon fanboy, I'm not quite that far, uh, but if you decide you want to uh, figure out how to run an Amazon uh, server and, and administer it that way, where could you go to find that out, Seth? Well, if you really wanted to do something like that, you could hop on over to the Linux Academy where they have kind of facelift and given themselves a new look, but it's step-by-step videos, kind of how-to. You can see it on the screen. You can do it as you need. It's a, it's a lot like having a one-on-one instructor where you can hey i didn't understand that so you can just rewind the video you can do it yourself there's quizzes you can take to see if you really mastered the concept or if you need to go through it again they have like pdfs you can get over as kind of like an outline um there's over a hundred training courses available you get a dvd option available for offline viewing and you can do all of this for the low price of one dollar for 14 days you mean Um, to tell me that there is a single website where i can get all of this goodness and it only cost me a buck for two weeks really that sounds unbelievable seth but wait there's more so if you decide (laughs) it's something you like for $19 a month or $38 a quarter, so buy two, get one month free, you can sign up for this, and he they have aligned their goals to match the um, certification so you can go and prepare yourself for Linux certification, and all you have to do is just search the job market. If you put the word Linux anywhere on your resume, you're going to get hits, and if you know Linux and you know not just i can spell it and i know it used to be unix kind of stuff but if you know how to do things you know you can terminal in and you can use the command line and you know about ip tables and things like that then you can command a hefty salary uh and go out and get yourself a degree or a job in the it field linux is a great thing to know and they are adding a new feature where if you if you have a company and you want to get access for your department you can go in and manage uh, multiple employees so uh, it's a new feature they're adding because apparently that there's a really cool demand for that so what you're saying is that a, a total novice who knows nothing about linux could go onto this one site and for less than the cost of a couple of pizzas get first-hand knowledge and instruction from a professional about linux but but what if I'm just not a visual learner? What kind of learning aids do I get, Chris, to help me in my studying? Well, obviously, they, we already talked about the PDF study guides so you can and reference sheets, so you would have those available at you at any time to go over and read. But also, they have servers up on the Amazon EC... Is it EC2? EC3. EC3. Um, that you control up to eight different distributions so you can play with all the different voice, all the different versions uh it's one of those things that you know you can do it any way that works for you visually with the videos uh, um or reading it or just straight out doing it it's a simple thing and for such a small small price 
to be able to put that on your resume that you're Linux certified, it's a great thing to do. We all trust it. We all like them. Go try it. Actually, you were wrong. I was wrong. It is EC2, Elastic Cloud Computing. I always forget that. Uh, so for 14 days, well, you can get a trial for a buck. 14 days is plenty of time to figure out whether you like the thing. It's not enough time to go through all the content. A hundred different courses, ah, that's going to take a while. So that's why you need to sign up for the for the monthly or even the quarterly plan. And uh, our friend Anthony is uh, rapidly about the, the business of expanding and growing the site. Like he said, they uh, have a whole uh, new website that's just been released. And this multiple employee thing, that's fine for a company. But where I see the real value of this, and, and it, it shows my background, is in, in education. So I have a class full of students. And I want to give them access to the site, and I want to track what courses they've been taking to make sure they're doing their work. And I want to track the tests that they've been taking and the scores they've made on it because I, I need to be able to give them a grade. Anthony has built that for you. It's a classroom teacher's tool, and he doesn't even know it. So that's an amazing thing, all for the low, low cost of 19 bucks a month or 38 bucks a quarter. By the way, these guys totally didn't know I was going to make them do the ad read. So good job, fellas. That happened just off the cuff. So thank you, Linux Academy, for sponsoring us. And thank you, Element OP people, for sponsoring the Linux Academy. And if you go there and you, you do sign up, use the code EverydayLinux so that they know you came that we sent you there. So uh, enough about that. LinuxAcademy.com rocks. Just do it. I would suggest yeah, they use that as their slogan. Sad. I would suggest they use that as their slogan, but I think somebody else has already done that. Just do it. I'm not sure. So Seth thinks we need to wish the Beagle Board a happy birthday. I don't know why. I don't know what the Beagle Board is, but let's find out why Seth thought this was important. Well, it's been five years ago that the Beagle Board came out, and this kind of started the whole craze of, like, they're called matchbook computers, the little tiny boards that um you know raspberry pi being the most famous but by no means only one so it kind of all started with the beagle board five years ago today has of uh, the recording of this show um and you know and if you go here and you follow this link they kind of they show the different pictures of what they look like you can go through but it opened up the era of low-cost desktop computing where you can actually get especially with Linux, you can get a full desktop experience that fits in the palm of your hand. Um, so anyway, happy birthday, Beagle Board. And another birthday that I know more about than the Beagle Board, 20 years ago, July 27th, 1993, a little thing called Windows NT was born, and it literally changed the world of servers. Well, yeah, I mean, and the desktop, too. Uh, and again, you know, NT stood for new technology, but um, I read an article by Mark, the Sys Internals guy, Racinovich. I can never mm -hmm. say his last name out loud. Um, but he t he traced the technology, like, to the mid-70s, so it's not really <laughs> yeah. what you would call new technology, but it did have some groundbreaking things. Um, NT 3.1 kind of started it all and then you know three five was the famous one and nt4 you know and the thing is there are still nt4 servers in production today almost absolutely years later and workstations um, yeah not so much workstations um but there are some yeah but uh anyway 
20 years ago yesterday, July 27th, is when Microsoft launched Windows NT. And even though they've kind of dropped the NT, the numbering conventions still follow the NT model. Um, for NT4, that was Windows 2000, 5 was XP, uh, 6 was Vista, 7 was 7, and you know, and now we're on 8. So there you go. Happy birthday, yeah. Microsoft. So Please it- send me a Surface RT. <laughs> if you don't think that's a big deal, uh, just think about the fact that the Windows NT kernel is still at the core of of your Surface tablet and your Windows 8. Uh, they have tweaked that kernel over time, of course, just like the Linux kernel has, has been modified over the years. But they started new with the NT kernel. They threw away everything they knew and started new, and uh, it's still, been, uh, still around today, 20 years later. How many things... Yeah in technology last two years, let alone 20 years. Yeah. Right. It, that's that just a little new, un- new thing called Win32 has been around yes. for that long. You're right. Because it was 32 bits. 32 bits? Who needs 32 bits? Really, that's just excessive. Certainly not a Capcom game. You only need eight <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, and something that is brand new, the Nexus 7, Google's latest uh, tablet. Uh, the second, the uh, version two of it uh, goes on early sale uh, this week. The uh, Android 4.3 second generation Nexus 7 uh, is available on the Google Play Store. Uh, it's really more of the same. It's just faster with the later, uh, newer operating system. And oh, by the way, they dropped the price. Yeah, it is also, um, they actually threw in the Retina display and it has better resolution than the ipad mini which was the best resolution in that seven inch size um and yeah they released it early um it's the first device running the new android 4.3 um quad core processor one quad core 1.5 gigahertz processor two gigs of ram 1920 by 1200 resolution which is better than 1080p Right, uh, 1.2 megapixel camera, which uh, is not awesome on the uh, front, and five megapixel on the back, which is is pretty good, not terrible. Yeah. Uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth 4.0. Who's using that? Uh, GPS, NFC, wireless charging support. That's going to be a big deal in the future. It's still not there yet, but it's going to be. Right. Uh, and all of that with a headphone jack and a micro USB charging uh, port uh, uh, for. $229 for the 16 gig version, 269 for the 32 gig. So all of that for under 300 bucks. That's pretty you know, darn impressive. I'm going to buy that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's Kindle Fire pricing right there. I think they're selling that at a loss. I don't think they're making any money on that. Well, well I mean, that worked out so good for the Amazon. They sold the Kindle Fire at a loss and exactly. you know, they're using it as a storefront and Google said, "Hey, that works for you. I'm going to do it too." But, you know, just look at the specs. Quad-core 1.5 with 2 gigs of RAM. I mean, that's not a bad desktop. You know, I mean, it's entry-level, but that's not a bad desktop to have, much less a little tiny tablet. Up to 10 hours of battery life, uh, uh, playing HD videos. Um, The latest version of the operating system, and it will be one of the first to upgrade uh, when when the time comes, for, for under 300 bucks. Uh, I'm not in the market for a seven inch tablet. I don't need one, but if I did, that would be where to go. That's the one. Yeah. At this point in time. But (laughs) if, if there's one thing I know from watching television, I have to have a tablet where the keyboard clicks. So I don't (laughs) think, yes, 
I just, I don't think this is going to work for me. I mean, if I can't get, you know, 50, uh, super hot college age people dancing over tables and clicking their keyboards to their tablets, it's obviously garbage. Right. It's cool because it clicks. Yeah. Right. Uh, and a bit of old news. Uh, this happened actually before last week's show, but we didn't talk about it. The Apple developer website was, was, uh, hacked and Apple, uh, took a, an unusual approach to it. Um, they shut down the site. That's not unusual. And then they said, you know what? We're not going to bring it up until we completely rebuild the site. We're starting from scratch. So that tells me one of two things. Either one, they just said, all right, here's a good opportunity to take down something that hasn't been built, that hasn't been updated in a long time, and we're just going to we're gonna turn a bad thing into a good thing, and we're going to totally rebuild it. Or what I think is far more likely, they got to looking at it and went, holy crap, I can't believe how badly coded this was. This takes a total rebuild to fix. I think that's what happened when they got to yeah. looking at why they were hacked. They said, we can't patch this. We have to rebuild it. So uh, um, more than two weeks have passed, and the site's still down, and there's still uh, no ETA of when it's going to be back, as far as I know. Yep. That just goes to show that you know, everybody's a target, and everyone will get hacked. It's just win. Yeah, and Apple yeah. was a pretty big target. Yeah, they're a really big target. and. Um and they admitted it, you know, normally they're like, oh, nothing happened. W- what are you talking about? So yeah, they they came out with this one. They said, yeah, we got hit bad. Uh, okay. And moving on to the next story again, old news, not going to pound on it, uh, but uh, we'll see. And here, here, this is FUD. This is plain old FUD. It turns out that Google Glass, which is a Wi-Fi device, is uh, vulnerable to the same hacks that every other Wi-Fi device is. <gasps> Oh no! I think it's funny that they're they're quoting a, a they're t- <laughs> they're calling the thing that can be hacked that that does that does the hacking the Wi-Fi pineapple from Hack Five. That just makes me laugh. Yes. Yeah, because it doesn't take a Wi-Fi pineapple. All it takes is a laptop. That's really mm-hmm. all it takes. Because you can set up, you know, your laptop in internet connection sharing mode and. Um, uh, you know, broadcast a SID out there or an SSID and see what you can get. But, you know, I just, the main reason I wanted to bring this story up is because as technology becomes more and more prevalent, whether it be, you know, the phones that we talked about before, Google Glasses, um, everybody seems to want there to be a huge smartwatch market. And I don't know if there will be or not, but you know, you're wearing these things, you can't just run them wide open. You know, you need to think, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't have this turned on by default, you know, or maybe I should secure it uh, or require a password or things like that. So just as technology becomes more wireable, more or more wearable, more portable and more ingrained and you don't t- you don't give it a second thought you're walking around with this device that the default is to accept any wi-fi hotspot you've connected to before well i mean you're just you're just asking for trouble because you know you can go and if you don't if you don't think about it and granted this would be an extreme example but you could um you could be you could be compromised and they could see what you're looking at and you could be at an ATM putting in your pin code. Now granted that's an extreme example and it probably wouldn't happen and I don't want to really sow a bunch of fear, but su- stuff like that could very easily happen if you don't take the chance take the time to say 
you know, to do some basic security before you start using this stuff. And again, that's yeah. not just Google Glasses, but it's a smartwatch and has the wearable, you know, coat and the MiFi networks take off. Things like this will be more prevalent in the future. It's the same old problem, right? So if you have your laptop configured to automatically connect anywhere you've connected before, you go down to the local Starbucks and the Wi-Fi SSID is Starbucks. Then anytime you pass by something called Starbucks that's unencrypted, it'll try to connect to it. This is a known issue. I don't even want to call it a problem. It's 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 a design feature that people use without realizing what they're doing. Uh, of course, the answer all the time. The answer to this is always secure all Wi-Fi, always. Um, like when I, I talked a couple of weeks ago, maybe just last week, about the skating party I had for my kid. They had free Wi-Fi at the skating rink, but it was secured, and there was a big sign freaking huge poster board that said password is yada 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 so you still got free wi-fi but it's secured that's the way people should be doing it instead of having unsecured wi-fi spots uh, uh hot spots even make the password you know in the name of the ssid like the SS the name of the network could be the password for this is bob and it's still open <laughs> and anybody can use it but it's not going to connect automatically without a password right. so that's that's the power of it yeah, and um, this so, is, yeah, it's, it's just a, yeah. Go ahead. Just a a new technology that people want to be scared of, so they find a flaw in it, which is actually the same flaw in every other Wi-Fi device ever. Uh, but you know, because it's Google Glass, people will read the article and they'll get clicks. Yeah, well, I mean, and, you know, regard when you buy something new, take five minutes and learn about it, and don't just turn it on and go. You know, in the, uh, you know, in military or law enforcement, you would say ready, fire, aim, uh, right. instead of ready, aim, fire. Uh, and while we're in the FUD mode, let's read another article on Yahoo News about Google. There's going to be unbiased reporting uh, that talks about Google's latest uh, uh, way to force ads on you. If you if you have uh, seen the if you're a Gmail user and you have the latest uh, interface with the tabbed inbox, one of yep. the tabs is promotions. That means ads. And surprise, surprise, they put ads in that tab. <gasps> oh, no. Actually, <laughs> it's not that bad, personally. Um, for me, at least, I have all my... I, I set up my filters already to all the stuff I get from, like, Newegg and Amazon. It all goes to promotions anyway. So, what's the big deal? So, what they're saying is Google will slip an ad in your promotion section that is a promotion. Okay. Why is this news? Uh, just Why And by the way, you can, you can turn that tab off. No problem. It's an opt. It's, it's opt out. So, when your default setup has a promotions tab, but it's like two clicks to get rid of it. And then you don't see those anymore. They just go to your your trash or where, wherever you tell it to go. So it, it's not it's not a big deal, but because people hate Google, it's an article about it. Yeah, I went in and turned mine off just because I hate it when people send me stuff that I didn't ask for. So I went in and turned it off. See, I don't like the I don't like the tabbed inbox inbox. So I turned that off anyway, just because I don't like it. Right. Um uh, and and that we haven't talked about that on the show because it's not really germane to the show, but the tabbed inbox is uh, basically 
set of preset filters for you. But mm-hmm. if you already have filters set up, you don't you don't need filters because they're already there. But it's it's really for uh, for people who have never used the filter function. Uh, it presets a few up for them and gives you uh, some some ideas uh, as to how you could use it. That's basically what it's for. It's sort of a um, what's the word? Uh, best practices setup, and also yeah. it gives you the option option um, to uh, force some ads on people. So it's it's you know it's 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 both goes both ways. Uh, you can set up sort of a golden standard, and you can force ads on people. If you're Google, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, um, it's and anyway. personally for me, um, did you use the priority inbox, Mark? Did you? No, I didn't that? like it. I don't like okay. it. What it what it boiled down for me is when I was playing with it um, before, because I, I was one of the lucky people that got opted into it as a beta user. So uh, I started using it back when they were still, you know, trying to figure out all the bugs. And the only thing that really bothered me was the fact that it overwrote some of my filters. But I was a priority inbox user from the start. And all it really is to me now is just priority inbox on crack. Uh, or right. speed or something. It, it's just priority inbox to the next level. And for me, you know, I don't even look at the other tabs unless I know I'm expecting something. Or if I do, I hit the tab and select all and delete. <laughs> I don't, there, there's no opening of those things for me nine times out of 10. It's just dumping them. So, you know, it works great for me. If you don't like it, you can turn it off. Yeah. So there, there you go. Let's not forget, by the way, that Google is an advertising company. They make their money by selling ads. So let's not be so shocked when they find a way to put an ad in your inbox. Uh, <laughs> you can like it or not, but it is what it is. Uh, and while we're on the Google topic, we can't let a show go by without mentioning their latest new product, uh, which is going to be pretty cool, but in my opinion, doesn't seem to be quite ready yet just from what i've read about it it's the google chromecast it's their uh it's a essentially a usb stick with a a a, an hdmi port on it you plug it into any hdmi compatible device and then here's the kicker you can take any tab once you put a plug-in in any tab on your chrome browser on your computer and throw it up on that screen all right that's pretty cool so is. this brings the web to your TV, like like Microsoft tried to do with Web TV back in the '90s. Uh, but more than that, uh, if coders write their sites uh, a little bit uh, special, uh, there's some code that has to go on. But you can throw just the video segment of it on there. So like when you're on the the live portion of ElementOP.com, I could uh, have a button there that says uh, "Send to Chromecast." And just the video will go up there. Now, you know, think Netflix does that. Hulu does that. Um, you know, Amazon uh, uh, Prime does that. Now, you have literally made it a one-stop shop to send video to your TV. Here's the cool part. The device itself is doing the downloading. So it's not downloading to your computer, then being shuffled from your computer to your TV like Apple AirPlay does. The device just gets a command, go download this content. That's cool. Right. Yeah. Best part, 35 bucks. Yeah. And apparently um, they tested it. If you like what I do a lot whenever, because uh, I'm bandwidth impaired at home is I will download stuff to look at later. If you play it in Chrome, it will catch that as well. 
So if you if you are if you're kind of bandwidth impaired, you know you you download a few things um, at work or when you're out at a hot, at a like a coffee shop or something, you can bring them home and then watch them that way on your big screen TV instead of your little smartphone. It works on uh, Android. They say iOS is still coming soon, but it hasn't happened yet. But uh, I, I, to me, it looks, it looks really, really cool. So, you know, basically it's a portable smart TV. You just need to supply the screen. So. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. It, it, it might dethrone my Roku from my living room. Oh, by the way, it's, it's 35 bucks, but when you buy it, you get six months of free subscription to Netflix, even if you're a current user. So. Actually, the the Los Angeles Times reported that Google is ending the next the Netflix promotion due to overwhelming demand. <laughs> Netflix said we're not going to make any money for the next ten years if you do that. That's funny, right? That's funny. Um, so I I'm not going to run out and get one, but when they come to you know my local store, which I'm sure will happen, it'll be at Best Buy or whatever. Next time I'm there, I'm probably going to pick one up because it's a neat idea. Uh, and if I can tie it into the, uh, the, the, the network device I already have in my network, in my uh, home network and plug it in my upstairs TV and be able to, um, watch all my videos up there, plugging a thing in done, done and done. But Mark, you can go to elementopcom slash Amazon and order one, uh, Google Chromecast HDMI streaming media player that is temporarily out of stock, but it will be back later. So you don't even have to go to your local store. You can buy one for $35 and say, and pay yourself some money. And if you happen to to be a prime user, uh, free next day shipping. All right. So yeah, check that out. It's a pretty cool thing. Uh, The next thing I think, I think I'm going to make this last because we're running Fairly long. There's one more that I may or may not do. Uh, but this is an interesting thing, you know, with all the, the NSA, uh, um, Edward Snowden things, there's been lots of news stories uh, recently about security and government. None of the, the information isn't new. It's just now being uh, uh, reported where it wasn't before. Uh, the CNET has an article that says, that talks about how lots of websites are asked on a regular basis to provide uh, user passwords. And um, to a man, every company has said, we can't tell you whether we've ever been asked for a password or not, largely because the government has the ability, the U.S. government has the ability to say, you can't tell people what we've asked you for. Um, That's one of those Patriot Act things where they they can uh, do what's called an NSA, National Security um, administration letter and say we want this information and you can't tell anybody that we ask you for this information so nobody will say whether they've ever been asked for passwords but uh, Microsoft for example was asked have you ever been uh, asked for a password they said we can't say would you ever give a password no so different companies have said yes or no um, but the the interesting thing here is if a company can give you the pass, give the feds your password. You don't need to be doing business with that company. No kidding, because that means they're stored in an unencrypted fashion, and that should never be the case. Well, yeah, and the article also talks about how the government is asking for like the hashed phrase and the salt that they use to make the password. So right. it's like 
they're trying to get the stuff to crack them quick, crack them quickly. So, yeah. And, but let's, you know, let's be a little more realistic about what that quickly means. So what they're saying is give us your encrypted passwords. So, uh, let's say, um, Dropbox. No, LastPass, because I know LastPass does it. LastPass does not know your password. They get a pre-encrypted hash of your password, and that's what they store uh, on their servers. And then they, your, your local client re-encrypts your password when you enter it, and it compares the two and says, are they the same? If yes, let them log in. If no, kick them out. So uh, LastPass could never comply with a request to give a password. They can't do it. But the government can say, give us the hashed passwords, tell us which algorithm you use, MD5, uh, you know, RSA, whatever it is, or if you built your own, tell us what that is, and give us the salt. Salt is what, uh, it's random gibberish. Often uh, it should be, ideally, one-time salt, but it's not always one-time salt. It, it may be salt, uh, just random gibberish thrown in. So let's say my password is monkey123. They'll take monkey one, two, three. They'll add some salt to it, which is another hundred characters of random gibberish. And then they'll encrypt that. So that when I give them a password, they, the, my client knows that, that I, that it should take my password, mix it with this salt, and then they'll compare that. So what they're saying is give us the algorithm, give us the, the hash, give us the salt. Then we can backwards compile it or, or uh, decompile it. Except hashes don't work that way. They're designed to be one way only. You can't put the gibberish back through the the hash and get the password. That's not how it works. So this article, you know, CNET's generally pretty good about this, but this article kind of misleads you, um, as I read it, to say that they can do that. That's not how it works. But if they have the salt and they have the hash, then they can start brute forcing passwords really easily and just try you know, random characters one one at a time without having to, you know, figure anything else out. So it's still a lot of work. If you've got a good password, if you've got a 14-character, uppercase, lowercase, special characters password, it's still going to be trillions of years before they can get to it, even with the hash and the, the algorithm. One of the cool things about the article is they did a thing a guy came out colin percival in 2009 he did a paper that kind of estimated how long or how much money it would take to crack a password uh in an average of one day and you know and he's like um for example an eight character bcrypt password composed only of letters to do this in an average of one day the hardware cost would be approximately fifteen hundred dollars um and then you know he goes on if you want to do this if you want to do that and you know um if you go up to like 10 characters it was like 1.2 billion alphanumeric and then you know and then they kind of had a follow-up with them and said you know how much would hardware prices today be then and so that i thought that section of the article was just kind of interesting to read because you know it's like any password can be hacked but you can just make it so hard and so big and so long that it would take so long to hack it would be worthless by the time you got it um you know but it it was just that was an interesting aspect of the article yeah and uh the under current U.S. law, you cannot interact with something as if you were that person. For example, if uh, 
if I have a lock on my house, you can't take the key from me. The police can't take the key from me. They can compel me to use my own key. Um, that's a super simple example. So the undercurrent law, it's not, um, it hasn't been currently set up specifically that the government could ever log onto your account as you using your credentials. So uh, th- there's nothing that says you can't, but there's not been any ruling that says you can. So that's what these companies are standing on when they get these requests, if they get these requests, because they can't say that they have. They're saying there's no law that says you can do that. So go take a flying. But loop. Mark and the fact that nobody's been sued over it says that they're probably it's right. It's for the children. It's for the children. Yeah, it's for the children. And if you don't do it, you're a terrorist. So are are you a Taliban gun-toting terrorist who hates kids that you wouldn't be in favor of this? Oh, you forgot kitty porn. You got to put that well, in there too. We're saving the children. Mark, we're saving the children. Right. Don't don't you love kids, but not that way? <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> when did you stop beating your wife, yes. sir? Uh, <laughs> so that uh, there's a lot of fud going around. Uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, if you don't know what FUD means. Uh, there's a lot of FUD going around about things, but it really comes down to the same stuff that we've always said before. Have a good password. Don't use the same password everywhere. And as much as possible, vet the sites you use. Find out what their policy is for for using uh, your passwords. How do they store it? Not everybody tells you, uh, but if they can tell you, and if you, you may have to drive dive through the policy uh, privacy policy to find it. Um, for example, I'll tell you uh, our site, we, we store, um, encrypted hashes only. And I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it may be MD five, but it's a heavily salted MD five. So if you have an account on elementopi.com and somebody in the federal, federal government comes to me and says, give me your password. I can't, can't, I cannot comply with that. I'm, I'm unable to comply right? because I don't know what your password is. So I can tell them to go take a flying leap. <laughs> But as I say in my privacy policy, if the federal government comes to me and asks me for your information, I will sing like a canary in a cage. I will tell them everything I know I have to. It's the law. So just know that that's what you're getting into. Um, do we want to do this stolen code? I think, yeah, we've got time because I think it's interesting. All right. So here's an interesting question. <laughs> if I open source somebody else's code, does that make it open source? <laughs> um. No, kind of. Yes, kind of. I uh, it was this was an interesting story because what happened was this person um took the uh it apparently was a Samsung um you know we talked a few weeks ago about XFAT and how that is finally coming to the Linux kernel, but um this person took this code and posted it online because they wanted the code to be free electrons want to be free you know and and i i believe it was for the children that they did this but so anyway you know and they they posted their ill-begotten uh xfat driver under the gpl license so it was stolen code or at least uh shadily appropriated code does that make it free and here's the thing. Apparently they looked over the code before they posted it and found where sections of it were the exact same as, um, I'm looking through the thing, older 
That's Linux kernel yeah, code. Yeah, old Linux server code that was, and that code had originally been licensed under GPL. And part of that license is, you know, you can't take that code and close source it. Uh, which, so in effect, they're saying, well, what they did was illegal under the code and I'm making it better. So. Which is total BS, by the way. It, you can use open source code as much as you want. You just have to be divulge the open source code that you used. And if somebody asks, you can say, I use this section of code. I'm not going to tell you where I used it, but this is the section of code I used. That's legal within the GPL. So this is, I have to think this is an intelligent person to do what she did, and they do say it's a she. Um, but that's a stupid argument from an intelligent person. Yeah. That That's bonus, bogus. But the more interesting thing is, what do you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? The code's out there. People have seen it. Even if they all get together and form a big circle and sing Kumbaya and delete the code from their browsers, they've seen it. Yep. It's in their heads, and they can write derivatives based off of it. So the damage has been done. So she effectively open-sourced this code, whether she was right to or not. It has been done. Uh, but then the question is, was it right? Can you take If you take something I did... And when for, you know, if you take, say I write a book and you take that book and scan a copy of it and post it online, does that make it legal just because you put G, uh, you know, uh, GPL on it or, or it wouldn't, it'd be copy left, uh, something like that. Um, creative commons. There it is. So if you take my work, which I maintain the copyright of erase the copyright 1997 and put uh, creative commons license, does that make it right? I think any sane person says, no, it doesn't, but it doesn't change the fact that it's out there and it's been done. Yeah. So now they can sue anyone who produces code similar and say, uh, you got this by looking at code that was stolen from us. Therefore you can no yeah. longer work on this project. And that is what's damning about this whole thing. Yep. So this person, this 19 year old kid thought she was doing a good thing. But what you just said, Seth, is exactly what's going to happen. Anything that starts to look like an XFET driver now, they're going to say that's stolen code and they're going to shut it down. So in her overzealous attempt to to bring people together, she has actually hurt the Linux development for probably the next 10 or 15 years. But maybe it wasn't a she and maybe it was somebody from Microsoft claiming to be a 19-year-old kid. <laughs> and that's how they're going to take down Android, Linux, and all everybody that trounced over their pathetically performing latest iteration of their operating system. There's, there's my weekly conspiracy for you. Kind of a weak conspiracy, but it would work. Yeah. So now, now all open source code dealing with the XFET file system is going to be under extra heavy scrutiny because of, what this person did you can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but it is a fact she has she has altered the universe as we know it by doing that and and i'm sure she thinks she did the right thing i personally don't agree i think she made a mistake she made a mistake that a 19 year old is prone to make uh being idealistic more than and, realistic. And here's a quote from her. Um, Honestly, I don't understand how it's even possible to patent any file system. It's not a concept. It's a variation of having a structured array of bytes on a block device. I mean, that's 
Right. Whether you agree with it, whether you see how it's possible or not, the patent right. exists. Yeah, it's, that's the, the thing you got to deal with. That's the realism. Yeah. That's the realism versus idealism right there. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it. The patent's there. Okay. So uh, moving right along to the dark side of embedded learning. Now, this is very old news. This goes back to January and then some new information released in March. Uh, so we're not presenting it as a news story, but as a Linux story. Um, we talked a, a little bit before about the hidden Linux in a previous show, uh, that, uh, you know, Linux is all around you, whether you realize it or not. Well, a professor by the name of H.D. Moore, uh, not really specifically looking for Linux, he thought, wouldn't it be interesting to ping the entire internet and see what you could find out? So he started from there, started pinging the internet. And then he began to find lots of these uh, devices that had full operating systems open to the public. And he thought, being the, the clever guy that he is, by the way, this is all highly illegal. And I, I doubt H.D. Moore is his real name. Because um, if it is, he's in trouble. So let's just get that out, out in the open. What he did was wrong and illegal. Well, illegal. We can, we can debate wrong. So he built sort of a self-replicating virus of sorts. Because pinging the internet's a big deal. Right there's uh, uh, th- uh, 16 billion addresses. I Something think it like is that. 32 billion. I forget the the exact number. It, it uh, there's a there's a no. It's four billion. I'm sorry, four billion possible internet devices. Yeah, that's the internet space available. So to ping every one of those is going to take some time. So when he found these other devices, these Linux devices out there, he thought, what if I can make one of them ping for me? And, and he set up a little peer network using his self-replicating worm uh, that he built. And he was able to ping the, the internet really quickly. But he also found some interesting things. For example, uh, he found over 50 million devices that are currently directly connected to the internet without the benefit of a firewall standing in the way. That you can connect to them and you can hack them through commonly known UPnP exploits. Oof. 50 million of them. Oof. That's all I could say to that. He found 100,000 devices directly connected to the internet, still using the default username and password, like a, like a D-Link router with the username D-Link and the password D-Link. He found, and what he found is a lot of them are printers, actually, networkable printers that were never designed to be directly connected to the internet. They were designed to be workgroup printers, so the people who designed them didn't take security in, into consideration. Why would you ever connect a printer directly to the internet anyway? Well. Because your office down the street that connects via DSL might want to print to that. And why bother setting up a, a VPN when you can just NAT an address through and you're good? And, you know, so we have all these. I was going to say, I got called um, when I was working at a school district. Somebody told me that their internet at home was just all jacked up. And what had happened was they had not change their default username on their uh, router and so so it had got hacked externally and you could not access any secure uh any security company's website like you could go to google but you couldn't go to semantic.com or whatever and so i had to go in and reset the router and then i set up a secure um ssid and i got everything working but then i had to take the secure wireless environment i set and make it unsecure 
because they had a wireless printer that could not function with a baseline level of security. So I ended up just disabling uh, UPnP and changing the default username and password, but I had to leave their network wide open because the printer simply wasn't able to connect to a secure wireless network. So there's tons of devices out there like that. And so basically, this guy he he started he started down a rabbit hole, oh, yeah. right? First, it was let's ping the internet, let's map it, and then his curiosity got the best of him. Who this is interesting? I found this thing. What can I do with it? So the the, the numbers get even more egregious, all right? So a hundred thousand devices, over a hundred thousand, with a default password. Thirteen thousand of those devices didn't even need a password. Would give you root access to the shell just because you asked for That's it. That's bad, 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 bad. So, okay, what's bad about it, Chris? What sort of things could happen if I hack your printer? Why do I care? What's the well, big deal? Well, you're, once you're inside the network, you can do some stepping and actually then start attacking internally through the printer. Um, there's plenty of those vulnerabilities out there. There are plenty of ways to do it. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want to have anyone <laughs> you know, sue us. But, yeah, there there's lots and lots of issues with this. Especially if you're in like a bank or something like that, where you can actually sidestep into a an environment that is supposed to be secure, this is bad. Um, and then, you know, there's lots of reasons that this is not something they could do, especially with the cost to fix this. I mean, how cheap is a router nowadays? You can go down to the, the your local mom and pop shop and probably pick up a router for what twenty bucks, maybe thirty. Yeah, that would solve this problem. Even the most basic firewall would solve this problem. But firewalls get in the way. Firewalls can complicate things. And I'm betting a lot of these devices are behind firewalls, but they're natted straight through the firewall. Because it's simpler, rather than opening specific ports, it's simpler to just nat right through it and and problem. Um, So, you know, go back to the what's the problem. The problem isn't that, you know, I could take my printer and make it start printing out random things. It's that I now own a device inside your network with a Linux bash command line. Okay? (laughs) Think about that for a minute. Now, it's a slow processor. It's probably going to be like 16 megahertz with a few hundred K of RAM. That just means I can't do anything fast. I can still do lots. HD Moore took advantage of that and made them slaves on his botnet. Made them ping the internet and find other stuff. But there's a lot of other things he could have done. He could have uh, turned on, uh, turned it into a remote uh, keylogger of of sorts. He could, he could. Once you're there, you're you're pro- you're trusted now. You're yeah, inside the network. Squid or not? So he could reach a yeah. He could a proxy. Yeah, yeah. A proxy in. He could he could he could reach out now to the servers. All right, and using simple command line tools, the command line godfather there is is always talking about how you can SSH into a server. All right, so he owns a server behind your firewall yeah, huh? with SSH turned on. So now he can SSH into your server. He's got to find the password, but, you know, uh, he could set this thing up to brute force it and just take his time. He's not in a hurry. Come back and check on it every six months if you want. Or just have a simple Once you're in, sends you a notice saying, hey, we're in. Right. So now that now that you're in, it may take a long time, but now that you're in, uh, you own a tier one server with inter- enterprise grade hardware. 
because you got through it through this edge device, through this printer that nobody thought anything about. And so, I mean, this. Well, I was just going to say, how many, I mean, Mark, Chris, y'all work in education. You know how many teachers bring in their own printer and try to put something in there without IT's knowledge or. I mean, you've had people, I've had people offices plug in a wireless router. They just, they brought it from home. Yeah, an access and they point. they stuck it in. Yep. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. And especially if it was an old wireless router they had at home that they quit, they quit using because they didn't think it was working right because it got infected at home. Now they bring it to work and they've compromised your network. Yeah, this. So let's say you've got a, a laser printer that's running an old Linux kernel. Okay, that, that's not been patched. It's got the old Linux kernel with the old exploits. Who cares? It's just a printer. Well, HD Moore <laughs> cares. everyone who is now going to read now, this article and replicate it. Exactly. So now he can hack a, a, a known broken kernel on a piece of hardware. It's not stellar hardware, but he has hardware that's who turns their printers off. It's running 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, and so he's got plenty of time to do whatever he needs to. And all that has to be is an edge device that gets them into the real hardware. But what's, let's go even farther. Let's say you're not trying to hack um, that particular company. You, maybe you don't even get enough information to know what that company is. You just turn that printer into an always-on DDoS box. Yeah. And aim it, you know, at some site you don't like. Low-orbiting ion cannon. Is that what you're yeah. talking about there, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> right. So you have you have this botnet of devices. And so let's say uh, I'm I'm trying to picture a scenario here. Some I'm the the admin at a company, and I get a call from um from ZDNet saying your IP address is uh um used in a DDoS attack against our site. Where am I going to go to start looking for this problem? I'm not going to go with the printers. I'm going to go scan my hardware, my computers. I'm going to say, uh, do, do I have any viruses on my computers? Do I have some, some things? I'm going to start scanning that sort of stuff. I'm not even going to think that one of my inkjet printers in the corner could be the one doing this. So they're, they're, they're stealthy. Even if they're detected, unless you go to the, all the effort to actually track down the direct IP, and if you're using you know, a DHCP, it, it can be impossible to track that down. So let's say you, get, uh, you use a back address table, and you see it was HP. HP makes network cards. <laughs> Are you going to think printer? No. no. You're going to go through your, your manifest of all your computers and find out which ones have HP network cards in them. And that's where you're going to go try to find the problem. You're not going to look at a printer. So even with active, smart people uh, directly trying to solve the issue, it's going to keep going and going because nobody's going to think, I got to turn off my printers. And in the meantime, your site gets blacklisted and all of a sudden your company's emails aren't getting through because you've been blacklisted by security companies. And now you've got a whole other mess of problems just from a couple of printers DDoSing (laughs) stuff. On that thought, think of it this way. Th- think of this, j- just as a, a funny quinkity since you brought that up. What if you are a security company with one of these edge devices open? <laughs> nice. That, that could, you get blocked. That, well, not, not just get blocked, but let's say there is certificate authentication. 
you know, what are those people that, you know, at, that give you an SSL cert? You can now, if you are in the network, you can then authorize an SSL cert for anything, for anyone. Was it you know, uh, DigiNotar, I think, from a couple <laughs> years ago? Yes, DigiNotar. DigiNotar, yep. Yes. Yeah. That, that. Now, let's, lest you think that you might be immune from this, HD Moore pinged the internet. You got hit. If your device is on the internet, you were hit. He managed to get through the full 4 billion uh, addresses. So if you have any device, be it cell phone, a router, anything that you own is connected to the internet, he tried you. All right? If you're vulnerable, there may be code running on your device right now. And there really isn't any easy way to and find it. And other people... He didn't open source his code, but he's open sourced his process. So bad guys are working on this right now. Like I said, this is a six-month-old article. It could be. Somebody has replicated his work. I have no yeah, doubt. It could be in the wild right now. And so the, I was going to say, this is one of those ahead. things. If you did basic security things that we mention all the time, do you have a firewall? Have you changed the default password? You know, if you can access your wireless router right now with the use with the username blank and the password is admin, you need to punch that little button to do a factory reset. <laughs> and then you need to change the username and password, turn off universal plug and play, and then recreate your wireless network. I mean, that's what you need to do. Yeah. That, and the, the point here is the basic minimum security standards will stop this. And my hunch is that the biggest offenders are the people who should most know yeah. better. It's, you know, Fortune 1000 companies who spend billions a year on IT budget and have some of the brightest minds in the business who order a printer from HP and plug it in. And, and somebody says, I'd like to be able to print to that from the office across town. Can you punch a firewall hole for me? And they do. Without even thinking. And they may even think to themselves, I should probably go secure that later. But for right now, I just need to get this done because this corporate bigwig is telling me he needs to print. I'm just going to open up all ports for now and I'll go back and to it. How many times no, do they go back I've to it? I've had people happens. who were who made money they made a lot money i wish i made in the it field telling me that firewalls were useless all you had to do was nat why well, need a firewall i i turned on nat and yeah. i was like i'm gonna change that um after you leave <laughs> and then i'm told no you can't do that because that's the way he set it up i'm like okay all right um so yeah, yeah i mean that's, that's, that's bad <laughs> well uh let me let me jump off of that. The one-to-many NAT is really actually very, very secure. If you have one IP address that you give to the outside world and all of your five to 5,000 devices on the other side share that, that's actually pretty darn secure. It's when you start doing the, the many-to-many. I'm going to give a static IP address directly on the internet, specifically for this device, and NAT it through. That's when you're really in trouble. So while that guy wasn't entirely right, he was, you know, was 80% right. So he was only 20% of an idiot. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe you knew him better, maybe more than that. But in that particular situation, the one-to-many, uh, Nat, is really very secure, which is why we say just go buy a cheap, the cheapest one you can find router. 
and that'll go a long way. Now, unfortunately, this the cheapest one you can find probably won't let you turn off UPnP, and may not let you have uh you know the the most uh, robust encryption on the Wi-Fi. So it's better to instead of buying the cheapest one, actually spend some money on a real device. But even the cheapest one that just gives you basic firewall would have stopped most of these problems. And yeah. our Boris box that we keep talking about definitely stopped this problem. Unless, of course, Absolutely. you, uh, you know, bypassed it and just started punching holes. Which IT guys do that all the time. I'm guilty of that, of course. It's um, when, <laughs> an example. I may have told it on this show before. I may not. I was setting up a Moodle server. If you're not familiar with Moodle and you're in education, shame on you. Um, I was setting up a Moodle server, and I did what everybody does. You're interested in setting it up. That's all you want to do. So you pull out all the stops, all right? Directly, I gave it a direct IP address, directly natted from the internet. I turned off SE Linux. I turned off the firewall. Because first, you just want to make sure it works. Then you harden it. Okay, so I had it installed. I had it set up. My phone rang. The voice on the other end of the phone was my wife saying, I'm going into labor. I'm on my way to the hospital. Right. Okay, I left. You would too. Trust me. I came back two weeks later because I stayed home for for two weeks with my new baby. Who owned that box now? Was it me? Nope. Oh, no. <laughs> I, d- I didn't own that box anymore. Um. And again, it was, you know, I did, uh, I just got interrupted. How, how many times have you IT guys who are listening right now been interrupted and got back to a task five or six or 10 days later? Yep. It didn't have to be your wife went into labor. It might've just been your boss said, um, you're not doing that right now. I've got this. And then this becomes that, and that becomes over there. And then you finally get around to it. Well, if you were just setting something up for now, you're part of the problem. You're one of those 50 million. Yep. Been there, done that. <laughs> I, I I did have to laugh, though, so, when I was reading the article, and I read the line where it says that uh, the U.S. government got a call from the Chinese government's computer emergency response team saying to get him to quit hacking their things. Right. I, I, I just I literally so, busted out laughing when I read that. I'm like, really? That's hilarious. Yeah, when you see the the block of IP addresses reserved for China, and you see a script going from one IP address to the next one in sequence, <laughs> you know there's an issue, right? And you track that down to a UP, U.S. address. <laughs> so, yeah, the Chinese government called up and said, um, stop that. <laughs> so, H.D. Moore, whatever your real name is, um, I hope you're not in prison right now because you actually did a good thing by doing a bad right. thing. You you were you were right. You were responsible. You didn't set up any code that was harmful. And if you if you go on to read the uh, initial article, um, he he says that he wrote his code to to delete itself after a certain period of time. Uh, he made it intentionally very harmful, harmless. Excuse me. Uh, but he then told the world a blueprint for how to do something right. harmful. And that was so long ago, I just, it's safe to assume somebody has by now. Right. So, uh, basic principles, basic security, go do it now. If you haven't already, stop the podcast. We're, we're about to wrap up anyway. 
If you're driving, turn around, go back home. Go back to work. Fix this now. Yeah, or go back to work. <laughs> Don't wait. Fix this now. Um, and go cycle the power on all your printers. Just turn them off and back on. That'll, that'll clear anything that's in there right now. So interesting article. Like I said, it's not news, but it's an interesting discussion about how the smartest people sometimes do the dumbest yeah, no things. Kidding. Any other comments before we move on to the tips of the week, gentlemen? Well, I would be curious. I, mean, I know we have a lot of like <laughs> geeks who work, you know, network IT and stuff like that listening to the show. What did you find out? Oh my gosh, I found 48 printers natted to the internet or something like that. Or, oh my gosh, at home, I forgot I had, I put in that new wireless router so I could hook up my Xbox 360 wirelessly. And it's been running UPnP to the internet with blank and admin as a password. Now, it would just be kind of cool. Uh, if you guys want to tell on yourselves, you know, we tell on ourselves a lot here. So just think it'd be kind of cool. Yeah. When I was a network admin, I, the last thing I wanted to do was punch a hole in my firewall. Yeah. I resisted and did everything else. And then I kept a, a very short list of just things that I did. And I only opened exactly the right ports. And I was that guy that you hate. All right. You're setting something up and you're trying to get it to work. And I would just open the bare minimum and you'd call me back and say, all right, now this part's working, but that's not. And I would go open up one more port. Okay. Now this is working, but that's not, I was the guy that made you take all day to do something you shot thought should be yeah. five minutes. Right. Yeah, that's because of crap like this. And you know, the, I, I do have a question though. I just ended up thinking about this. If you direct natted something, so like, this IP hitting this port can touch that IP internally would be immune to this, wouldn't it? Because you're going from target, from from one person through the firewall to a target directly. There is no mass, you know, mass targeting. It's just direct targeting to one particular IP. Well, if that IP was discoverable, no. I mean, if it's if it's a publicly routable address... His script is going to hit it because it's one of the four billion. Right. No, no. But I'm saying like from security company A needs to access security camera B. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I understand now. So saying that this end user is the only person who can access this yeah, endpoint. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I used to do that yeah. too. We had a video conferencing system and I had the cameras. They had to be directly connected, but I had those set up with one IP address. <laughs> And only one. And if that ever changed, they had to go back through the Nazi IT guy again. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that everyone, in case there was an IT guy who didn't realize yeah. that, that you are safe doing that, which is the way that all of my port forwardings are. <laughs> yeah. For all intents and purposes, that's a VPN yeah. at that point. And and in case you're the everyday Linux user, you're not a, um, an assistant man and you don't know what we're throwing around, let me define some terms. NAT is Network Address Translation. Um, it's the way that your stuff works right now. If you've got a cable modem or a DSL modem, the odds are your internet provider gives you one real IP address. All the other devices connect through that, through what we call non-routable or private IP addresses. Right. If it starts with a 192 or a 10 or a 168, uh, if you, when you look at your IP addresses, that's a non-routable. It, it doesn't really exist out on the internet. So you have a NAT, a network address translator, which says, um, I, you talk to me, 
and I'll relay the message. It's the secretary for the boss. No, you can't see the boss. You give me the message. Right. Uh, okay, the boss said to say this. So that's what your your box does. But in some rare cases, it's getting more and more rare now because IP addresses are are scarce, uh, becoming scarce anyway. But in uh, certainly back in a few years ago, it was common for an ISP to say, here's 250 addresses. Do what you want with right. it. And so people would take a device and configure it with a real IP address right on the internet. And that's where this came from. Uh, a lot of those are probably old devices that were set up an old way. Uh, like I can't remember the company right now, but there's a company that is holding on to the dot, the five dot addresses. That's 16 million addresses that this one company owns. Do you think they are uh, really concerned with natting? <laughs> I wouldn't be if I had 16 million addresses to use. I'd be handing them out like candy. Yeah. So those sloppy processes from earlier on uh, hung around, and they're coming back to bite us 20 years later. Yeah, go figure. We've been talking, notice this week and last week how many things are turning 20-ish? 20 years ago is when all this stuff really hit big. And those some of those problems are turning around to bite us now because we didn't know then what we know now, or it didn't exist then, and it does exist now. And so here's here's a, a more interesting thing. When we start moving to IP6, people are going to go back to that model. There's no reason to NAT when you have IP6. Right. But also, the address space is so big that it's unrealistic to to probe it. Unless so maybe it, unless you have a huge botnet to do it for you. Right. We haven't done a show on IP6 because we don't understand IP6. <laughs> We're experts and we don't understand it. Uh, but to put it simply, there's so much space in the IPv6 um, address space that every human on the planet could have the same number of IP addresses as there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's a big number. Very, very big number. So you, can, you, you personally can own that many addresses. It's that big. So we said there's 4 billion Right, right now in IPv4, well, you've got 600 tri- trillion to yourself in IPv6. So natting is probably going to become a thing of the past once that takes hold, which is also why it hasn't taken hold because we like the way we IT guys, we have things working and we don't want to break right. them. IP6 breaks everything. Right. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, th- I predict another 10 years. Well, even though we've been out of IP addresses for technically about five years now, I think it's at least another 10 years before IPv6 Well, I mean, and plus IPv6, just because the numbers are so much larger, it runs so much slower than IPv4 does. So you're adding tremendous latency into the network when you switch to IPv6, which the salesman will tell you, no, this IPv6 brand new router with 48 gig core processor runs faster than your little 200 megahertz router that you've been using for 10 years. See, it's faster, but the actual underlying code <laughs> run on comparable hardware IPv4, IPv4 runs much faster than IPv6. All right. So the hardware's going to have to get upgraded right. first. So that was a little, I started to break it down in non-geek terms, terms and then i managed to turn it into another geek hole it's a 
It's amazing how we've down the geek hole once again. So, Chris, in light of this story, what are your command line tips well, this, for this, this week? week? You know, I figured, you know, since the, the story topic that we have, um, I figured I'd bring in some of the tools that could be used to do similar things that was done today on the story today. Um, obviously, the first one is ping. Uh, everybody who's a network guy use ping. Everybody does. What's the first thing you do if someone says the network is down? You ping. You ping. Ping it. That's just a simple one. You call tech support. The first thing they say is open an IP, uh, open a command prompt, type CMP uh, in their run box, and type ping. <laughs> even the the little guy with an Indian accent yep. tells you to do so that. So that's the very first thing that anybody's going to even touch when it comes to checking for uh, any any type of connectivity issues. It's simple, it's quick, and it gives you a really good idea of what's going on. Uh, further up the string are HPing and Nmap. Now, these are almost interchangeable tools. They kind of do ping, but intensely more. Um, they actually scan for open ports to see if probably what this guy used is something similar to HPing or Nmap to do the scanning that he was using because it actually goes through all the ports and tells you if it's open or closed. Uh, there's obviously more things inside of Nmap and HPing that I'm not going to go into detail with, but these are both tools that will tell you what's open, what it can be hit with, and it's just a good thing. Um, Nmap also has a nice ability where you could map a network if you're in internally, so you can get an, a fisheye view of your whole network. It's kind of a neat little tool. Go check it and look at it. And while we're talking about the whole idea about the printer being compromised, the next tool that could be used is Netcat. Um, this is a, a back-end tool. It's normally detected and killed by most antivirus companies, but who runs antivirus on a printer? So Netcat would be one of the tools that could be easily used and easily stored because it's so small to pivot into your network and scan and take over other machines without even, you know, very, very little work done. Um, another thing to go look at, uh, I quote from Wikipedia for Netcat. Uh, it, it's a neat little tool. But unless you uh, heavily obfuscate it, it's going to be killed by any Windows antivirus. All right. And Seth, what do you got for us this Okay. Week? Well, I took the other approach in light of all of the the fear and danger and the world's coming to an end out there. Why don't you just go over to crackle.com and uh, watch some movies? This is, um, you can see there, they have, uh, different movies. They show, they kind of rotate and they're not like brand new movies that you would find out, uh, in the internet now, but things like the original Resident Evil, Real Genius, which is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to, uh, all of you young kids. Uh, and the yes. other ones up there as well as television series, uh, and there's even some, uh, original content on there, but it's crackle, C-R-A-C-K-L-E dot com. You can sign up there to like, um, you know, if you try to watch something R, it'll prompt you for your password or, or I mean, prompt you for your birthday and stuff like that. But you can watch the movies without signing up for it. I, uh, I started a few of them just to, to see if I could. Um, uh, but anyway, it's really cool. It, um, just a site you can go to and waste your time, much like uh, the rest of the internet. But you know, if you're tired of trying to catch that cat, go over to Crackle and uh, <laughs> and watch some movies. Yeah, I love Crackle. Yeah, I'm not. 
I'm not sure how this is legal or how it works, but uh, yeah, I mean these are these are movies that might have been first run some time ago. Like for example, I just clicked on the Sixth Day, Arnold Schwarzenegger big budget right. movie from from 2000. Um, it's not loading for me, uh, but you know, I I don't I don't know how this works, but it's kind of cool. They've got uh, original movies, uh, you know, independent films. They got TV shows and then uh, full length free uncut things. So I've never heard of this. Before, yeah, so I, 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 I love hadn't either, and I don't remember how I came across it. But yeah, I mean, there's some advertising on the page and stuff. So that's you know they're trying to uh, get some money that way. And the nice thing is, if it's illegal, it's them who deals with the the the, the MPA and not yeah, you. Yeah, it looks a little exactly. more legal than like a quick silver screen, which is one I used to use back in the day. Oh yes. So I watched a movie on Quicksilver Screen, the first part of a movie. It was uh, I Am Legend, uh-huh. Bruce Willis. Not Bruce Willis. Will Smith. Um, Will Smith, thank you. Um, and so you're watching the credits, and you get about two minutes in, and this little crawl comes up on the screen. Uh, this uh, um, Academy uh, Motion Picture Academy Awards preview is not intended for uh, uh, general release. You are responsible for basically this was the the reels they send for Oscar nominations. <laughs> Somebody had snagged it and put it online. Oh, for I was uh, <laughs> I've watched movies I- on quick silver screen where you see the shadow get up and walk across where somebody was filming it with glasses or something in a theater. <laughs> so <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Um. So as soon as I saw that, I turned it off. I realized I was watching something illegal, and it wasn't that interesting anyway. Uh, so, but that's you know, working in schools, uh, I found lots of sites like that where kids would be downloading something. I'd you know be scanning the internet and look. There's some kid watching Disney's Up while it's still in theaters. <laughs> Pretty sure that's not yeah, legal. No kidding. Um, on the topic though that we that we were talking about on Crackle is a movie called Untraceable. It's definitely one that's kind of fun. You have to, you know, turn off your 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 reality goggles a little bit, but it's a fun little video that's computer and and uh, suspense crime type th- thriller. Um, from the looks of it, it looks like uh, if after uh, let's see, we're gonna release on Wednesday, so you'll be able, you'll have to list r- go watch it Wednesday in order to get it because it's gonna be expired, and then they'll have other movies in. That's the other thing I like about Crackle is they do expire some of the movies and then they get other ones in to replace the ones that expire. So it's a constant regurgitation of other films. It's not as bad as Sandra Bullock in the net, is it? No, it's not that bad. Uh, but <laughs> Are you kidding? It, Just press escape. <laughs> but it, is, it is bad enough that you need to remember to turn off your reality goggles. Um but it is fun. It, it's a good little flick, and you get an idea of how security, how uh, the not necessarily the black hat hackers, but the other guys that are uh, trying to stop them work. Uh, it's not a hundred percent accurate, but it's close. You want a bad movie that's so bad it's fun to watch? Johnny Namak, <laughs> Keanu Reeves. I want to hack my brain with one. a dolphin. <laughs> yes. Keanu Reeves, Dolph Lundgren, Johnny well, Namon. Speaking of bad movies, I got to watch Sharknado last night. Yeah, it was on again last night. I, I introduced my wife to the beauty that is Sharknado. I said, look, I'm not going to make you watch a lot of this, but just you got to watch like five minutes of it. 
and we're at the scene where he's rescuing the kids from the back of the bus. So they're rappelling ropes down over an overpass into the back of a crowded bus full of kids. A shark, <laughs> shark doesn't bother any of the kids. 30 kids go up. It's fine. But the one last guy, the hero, starts to go up. Then the sharks decide they're hungry. One of them grabs, jumps up, grabs hold of the rope, and is hanging on to the rope. Jumping and, and biting I don't know what, higher every time. Yeah. You forgot that. Right. Yeah, he flips up. Yeah, that's right. He flips up and he bites a little higher and he flips. What's he gonna do when he gets there? I don't I don't understand any of this, but yeah, then the, the he says some, you know, hero line like, you know, I'm tired of this, whatever, and cuts the rope and then the shark. I think falls it was I'm tired of you hanging around the shark before he cut the rope. Yeah. Oh jeez. Shark jumps up onto the top of the school bus to to try to eat it. Oh, really? <laughs> really? And then that's when the water spouts that start throwing the sharks come in. And that's when I told my wife, I'm not going to make you watch any more of this. But, but what, this may be one I have to own on What DVD. you need to do, though, is you need to go to the Sharknado IMDB page. And there's a there's a thread somebody started on there. or And it was like, basically, pick random words and stick them together to make disaster movie names. It says, but watch out. Asylum might take our work. Which, uh, but anyway, some of the movie <laughs> titles that we're coming up with were awesome. They're just so go imdb.com, Sharknado, and then look on the thread about what if basically what if we took random words and put them together, you know, like uh, Chihuahua zombies or stuff like that. It's just, it's great stuff. All right. Uh, so I like to end this every show with a call to action. So here's my call to action this week. Uh, Seth gave you one earlier. Tell on yourself. If you're a network admin and you've done something stupid, like I let my Moodle server get hacked, um, let us know. But here's my call to action. Best bad movies. I want to see a forum thread by the end of the week <laughs> for best bad movies. The movies that are so bad, they're fun to watch because of their badness. Now, I don't mean just terrible movies that suck. I don't mean The Net starring Sandra Bullock. I mean movies that are, I mean Plan 9 from Outer Space. Movies that are so bad that they're fun to watch because they're bad. That is your command. Pseudo, go and do it now. And while you're at it, throw some money in the tip jar. <laughs> just because I said so. As long as I'm pseudoing, why waste a good command go. prompt when I can add a semicolon and, and add another command to it? Uh, as always, we appreciate your feedback. Elementop.com is where you can go and do that, assuming the site is up. It hasn't had seven consecutive days of upness in a while. Uh, so go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button, or click on over to the forums, leave a forum post. Again, best bad movies. Uh, or if you would like to uh, leave us a voicemail, you can do that by calling 559-IAM-OP. And uh, we will listen to it. And if it's good enough, if it's good enough, the bar is real low for that, by the way. <laughs> it's a really low bar for if it's good enough. Uh, we'll put it on the show. Uh, as always, glad to have you with us the, for the 105th time. Holy smoke. Unbelievable. Here's to 100 more. We're, we're now 5% the way to 200. So thanks for being a listener. Chris, Seth, as always, thanks for being hosts with me. And I'm going to say that ends this episode of... Everyday Linux! Ah. <laughs>